Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, season five. Can you believe it? Four years gone, and I hope you're enjoying this podcast and the stories I tell. And if you do like and follow this podcast, then I hope you tell your friends about it. Well, greetings from a balmy 12 degree San Antonio, Texas with about four inches of snow outside. Wind chill, they say, is somewhere around two or something like that. I'm not getting outside, but today, February 15th, is the day I record this. It is the actual anniversary of Terry's Mysterious Moments, and it's the birthday of my beautiful bride, Karen, who was in one of our shows earlier. These stories that I want to touch on this time, uh, I've dealt with before, so they may sound like reruns, but there's a, a few new thoughts to these cases that I just figured we would add to it. Number one is the Servant Girl Annihilator, also known as the Austin Axe Murderer, who was an unidentified American serial killer who preyed upon the city of Austin, Texas, between 1884 and 1885. The nickname, the Servant Girl Annihilator, originated with the writer O. Henry. The series of eight axe murderers were referred to by contemporary sources as the Servant Girl Murders. The December 26, 1885 issue of the New York Times reported that the murders were committed by some cunning madman who is insane on the subject of killing women. The murders represent an early example of a serial killer operating in the United States. Three years before the Jack the Ripper murders in Whitechapel in London, England. According to author Philip Sudgeon, 
in the complete history of Jack the Ripper, the conjecture that the Texas killer and Jack the Ripper were one and the same man originated in October of 1888, when an editor with the Atlanta Constitution proposed this conjecture following the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes by Jack the Ripper. According to Texas Monthly, the Austin killer murdered seven women. All the victims were attacked indoors while asleep in their beds. Five of the women were dragged, unconscious but still alive, and killed outdoors. Three of the women were severely mutilated while outdoors. All of the victims were posed in a similar manner. Six of the murdered women had a sharp object inserted into their ears. The series of murders ended with the killings of two white women, Eula Phillips, age 17, and Susan Hancock, who was attacked while sleeping in the bed of her 16-year-old daughter on the night of 24 December, 1885. Only one of those arrested, James Phillips, was convicted. He was found guilty of murdering his wife, but the conviction was later overturned. London authorities questioned several American cowboys, one of whom, according to the authors of Jack the Ripper A to Z, was possibly Buck Taylor, a performer in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Taylor was born in Fredericksburg, Texas, about 70 miles west of Austin. According to a front page article in the New York Times, December 26, 1885, 400 men were arrested during the course of the year. According to Texas Monthly, powerful elected officials refused to believe that one man or one group of men was responsible for all the murders. The African-American community and some practitioners of voodoo believed that the killer was a white man who had magic powers that enabled him to become invisible as no dogs outside or in fenced yards adjacent to locations where murders occurred were heard to bark or raise any alarm. The series of murders stopped when additional police officers were hired, rewards were offered, and citizens formed a vigilance committee to patrol the streets at night. Contemporary newspapers reported that the murderer or murderers had apparently fled the area as no more murders were officially attributed to the killer by the authorities. The victims were Molly Smith, 25, murdered on the night of December 30, 1884. Walter Spencer was seriously wounded. Clara Strand and Christine Mortensen, two Swedish servant girls, were seriously wounded the night of 19 March, 1885. Eliza Shelley was murdered on the night of May 6, 1885. Irene Cross was murdered by a man with a knife on the night of May 22, 1885. Clara Dick was seriously wounded in August of 1885. Mary Ramey, 11, was murdered on the night of August 30, 1885. Her mother, Rebecca Ramey, was seriously wounded. Gracie Vance and her boyfriend, Orange Washington, were murdered on the night of 28 September, 1885. 
Susan Hancock was murdered on the night of December 24, 1885. Eula Phillips was murdered the night of 24 December, 1885. According to a July 2000 article in Texas Monthly, there was an eyewitness who claimed to have seen the murderer, but reported contradictory information to the police. The killer was variously reported to have been white or dark-complexioned, or a yellow man, wearing lamp black to conceal his skin color, or a man wearing a Mother Hubbard-style dress, which is weird in itself, or a man wearing a slouch hat, or a man wearing a hat and a white rag that covered the lower part of his face. There were also reports that the killer worked with an accomplice or belonged to a gang of murderers. According to the Atchison Daily Globe of November 19, 1888, the Austin American Statesman reported that a Malay cook running on ocean vessels was a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders. The newspaper reported that a Malay cook had been employed at a small hotel in Austin in 1885. Furthermore, the newspaper reported that the Austin reporter had investigated the matter, calling on a Mrs. Schmidt, who kept the Pearl House near the foot of Congress Avenue, opposite the Union Depot, three years ago. It was ascertained that a Malay cook, calling himself Maurice, had been employed at the house in 1885, and that he left sometime in January of 1886. It will be remembered that the last of the series of Austin women murders was the killing of Mrs. Hancock and Mrs. Eula Phillips, the former occurring on Christmas Eve 1885, just before the melee departed, and that the series then ended. A strong presumption that the melee was the murderer of the Austin women was created by the fact that all of them except two or three resided in the immediate neighborhood of the Pearl House. In London, on the 13th of August of 1888, a sailor named George M. Dodge was interviewed by Scotland Yard. Dodge claimed to have met a Malay cook named Alaska, possibly Lasker, which is an old Malay word for sailor, at the Queen's Musical Hall at Poplar, London. He claimed that Alaska was about 35 years old, 5 feet 7 inches tall, weighed around 150 pounds, and sometimes carried a double-edged knife, which he showed George. The following is what George claimed Alaska told him. Quoting, He had been robbed by a woman of bad character, and that unless he found the woman and recovered his money, he would murder and mutilate every Whitechapel woman he met. Similar to the murders in Austin, all five of the Ripper's victims would follow a similar pattern of lower-class women within the radius of Whitechapel deep throat cuts, severe body mutilations, and organs removed, except in the case of Elizabeth Stride. Several witness testimonies of sightings of the alleged Ripper talking to Elizabeth Stride right before she was found dead have provided descriptions of him. One William Marshall claimed the Ripper was a stout man of about five feet six, wearing a black cutaway coat, dark trousers, and a cap that was something like a sailor would wear. A police constable named William Smith claimed the man had a dark complexion and a dark mustache, wearing a cutaway coat and dark trousers, and carrying a parcel wrapped in newspaper. 
A recent immigrant named Israel Schwartz claimed he shouted Lipsky to a second man. He had a full face, was broad-shouldered, wearing a dark jacket and trousers with a peaked cap. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in Texas, the author of the Statesman article followed up on that same lead and tried to contact the melee cook in London. Before he could reach him, however, he discovered that the cook had left London. After that, just like with the Austin killings, the killings in Whitechapel stopped too. On July 20th, 2014, the PBS TV show History Detectives aired an episode on the killings. Using a combination of historical research and modern techniques, including psychological and geographic profiling, they identified a suspect, Nathan Elgin, a 19-year-old African-American cook. Elgin worked in close proximity to the crime scenes and was missing his little toe, which was similar to a footprint believed to have been left by the killer, and we're speaking of Austin. In February 1886, shortly after the last murder, Elgin was shot and killed by police while he was attempting to assault a girl with a knife. William Sidney Porter, better known as the short story writer O. Henry, was living in Austin at the time of the servant girl's murders, and Porter coined the term servant girl annihilators in a May 10, 1885 letter addressed to his friend Dave Hall and later included in his anthology Rolling Stones. Town is fearfully dull, wrote Porter, except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators who make things lively in the dull hours of the night. No contemporary newspaper or published source referred to the murderer or murderers as the servant girl annihilator. Later, as mentioned, at least five women, what are called the canonical five, were murdered in London's Whitechapel district by someone who was later nicknamed Jack the Ripper by popular acclaim. The fear caused by these murders created much tension in the public, giving rise to public outcry against the police and causing violent vigilante groups led by local rabble-rousers. And although five women are listed as Jack's victims, there may have been more. The details of contemporary murders were different enough to cause police to dismiss them as not being caused by this evil person named Jack. Similarities as to social status of the victims in Austin and Whitechapel gave rise to the idea that these were done by the same actor. Also, some similarities of the violence lent credence to one person. Attacks ascribed to Jack the Ripper typically involved female prostitutes who lived and worked in the slums of the East End of London. Their throats were cut prior to abdominal mutilations. The removal of internal organs from at least three of the victims led to proposals that their killer had some anatomical or surgical knowledge. Rumors that the murders were connected intensified in September and October of 1888, and numerous letters were received by media outlets in Scotland Yard from individuals purporting to be the murderer. The name Jack the Ripper originated in a letter written by an individual claiming to be the murderer that was disseminated in the media. The letter is widely believed to have been a hoax and may have been written by journalists in an attempt to heighten interest in the story and increase their newspaper circulation. 
the From Hell letter received by George Lusk of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee came with half a preserved human kidney, purportedly taken from one of the victims. The public came increasingly to believe in a single serial killer known as Jack the Ripper, mainly because of both the extraordinarily brutal nature of the murders and media coverage of the crimes. Extensive newspaper coverage bestowed widespread and enduring international notoriety on the Ripper and the legend solidified. A police investigation into a series of 11 brutal murders committed in Whitechapel in Spitalfields between 1888 and 1891 were unable to connect all the killings conclusively to the murders of 1888. Five victims, Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly are known as the Canonical Five, and their murders between 31 August and 9 November of 1888 are often considered the most likely to be linked. The murders were never solved, and the legends surrounding these crimes became a combination of historical research, folklore, and pseudo-history. Things eventually settled down in London as they had in Austin, but with no definite suspects or convictions in either city, the private citizens of both may have walked home a little faster at night, stayed close to large groups while out in public, and looked over their shoulders a little more often. Terror visited the small community of Villisca, Iowa on the night of June 9th and the early morning of June 10th, 1912. The six members of the Moore family and two house guests were found bludgeoned within the Moore residence. All eight victims, including six children, had severe head wounds from an axe. A lengthy investigation yielded several suspects, one of whom was tried twice. The first trial ended in a hung jury and the second ended in an acquittal. The crime remains unsolved. The Moore family consisted of parents Josiah B., Sarah, and their four children, Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur Boyd, and Paul Vernon. An affluent family, the Moors were well-known and well-liked in their community. On June 9th of 1912, Mary Catherine Moore invited Ina May and Lena Gertrude Stillinger to spend the night at the Moore residence. That evening, the visiting girls in the Moore family attended the Presbyterian Church where they participated in the Children's Day program, which Sarah had coordinated. After the program ended at 9.30 p.m., the Moores and the Stillinger sisters walked to the Moores' house, arriving between 9.45 and 10 p.m. At 7 a.m. the next day, June 10th, Mary Peckham, the Moores' neighbor, became concerned after she noticed that the family had not come out to do their morning chores. Peckham knocked on the Moore's door. When nobody answered, she tried to open the door and discovered that it was locked. Peckham let the Moore's chickens out and called Ross Moore, Josiah's brother. Like Peckham, Moore received no response when he knocked at the door and shouted. Ross unlocked the door with his copy of the house key. While Peckham stood on the porch, Ross went into the parlor and opened the guest bedroom where he found Ina and Lena Stillinger's bodies on the bed. Moore immediately told Peckham to call Henry Hank Horton, Villisca's primary peace officer, who arrived shortly thereafter. 
Horton's search of the house revealed that the entire Moore family and the two Stillinger girls had been bludgeoned to death. The murder weapon, an axe belonging to Josiah, was found in the guest room where the Stillinger sisters were found. Doctors concluded that the murders had taken place between midnight and 5 a.m. Two spent cigarettes in the attic suggested that the killer or killers patiently waited in the attic until the Moore family and the Stillinger guests were asleep. The killer began in the master bedroom, where Josiah and Sarah Moore were sleeping. Josiah received more blows from the axe than any other victim. The killer or killers used the blade of the axe on Josiah while using the blunt end on the rest of the victims. Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul were next bludgeoned in the head in the same manner as their parents. Afterwards, the murderer returned to the master bedroom to inflict more blows on the elder Moors, knocking over a shoe that had filled with blood before moving downstairs to the guest bedroom and killing Ina and Lena. Investigators believe that all the victims except for Lena Stillinger had been asleep when murdered. They thought that she was awake and tried to fight back as she was found lying crosswise on the bed with a defensive wound on her arm. Lena's nightgown was pushed up to her waist and she was wearing no undergarments, leading to law enforcement speculation that the killer or killers may have molested her or attempted to do so. Over time, many possible suspects emerged, including a Reverend George Kelly, Frank Jones, William Mansfield, Loving Mitchell, and Henry Lee Moore, who was no relation to the family. George Kelly was tried twice for the murder, and again the first ended in a hung jury, while the second trial ended in an acquittal. Other suspects in the investigation were also exonerated. In their 2017 book, The Man from the Train, Bill James and his daughter Rachel McCarthy James discussed the Villisca murders as part of a much larger series of murders which they believe were all committed by a single serial killer. They conclude the murderer was Paul Mueller, or Miller, an immigrant possibly from Germany, who was the subject of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect in the 1897 murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. James started his research in an attempt to solve the Villisca murders, and with his daughter found archival newspaper stories detailing dozens of families murdered under similar circumstances across the U.S. The Jameses thus believed that Mueller was guilty of the Villisca murders as part of a killing spree that lasted over a decade, killing at least 59 people in 14 separate incidents. The Jameses identify common features to these crimes, many of which are found at the Villisca scene. The killer selected families who lived near railroad tracks, hence their book's title, seemingly struck in ambush at about midnight while the victims were asleep used the blunt side of an axe rather than the blade to strike the victims in the head and face, used an axe found at the victim's home and left in plain sight after the murders, covered the victims with blankets to prevent blood spatter, covered windows from inside the house, and locked the doors before departure. In Mueller's suspected crimes, there was often, but not always, a sexual motive directed toward 
a pubescent girl, as with Lena's being partially disrobed. In a blurb on the dust jacket of the hardcover edition of The Man from the Train, professor and crime writer Harold Schechter writes that the Jameses offered the most probable solution yet for the Velisca murders. At the end of World War I, evil once again came to the shores of the U.S. In New Orleans, from May 1918 to October 1919, a madman kept citizens on edge as he terrorized Italian immigrants. Whatever reasoning he used when he chose his victims wasn't clear. The Axeman of New Orleans was an American serial killer active in New Orleans, Louisiana, and surrounding communities, including Gretna, from May 1918 to October 1919. Press reports during the height of public panic about their killings mentioned similar murders as early as 1911, but recent researchers have called these reports into question. The Axeman was never identified and the murders remain unsolved. He targeted mainly Italian immigrants and Italian Americans. As the killer's epithet implies, the victims usually were attacked with an axe, which often belonged to the victims themselves. In most cases, a panel on the back door of a home was removed by a chisel, which, along with the panel, was left on the floor near the door. The intruder then attacked one or more of the residents with either an axe or straight razor. The crimes were not motivated by robbery, and the perpetrator never removed items from his victims' homes. The majority of the Axeman's victims were Italian immigrants or Italian Americans, leading many to believe that the crimes were ethnically motivated. Many media outlets sensationalized this aspect of the crimes, even suggesting mafia involvement despite lack of evidence. Some crime analysts have suggested that the killings were related to sex and that the murderer was perhaps a sadist specifically seeking female victims. Criminologists Colin and Damon Wilson hypothesize that the Axeman killed male victims only when they obstructed his attempts to murder women, supported by cases which the woman of the household was murdered, but not the man. A less plausible theory is that the killer committed the murders in an attempt to promote jazz music suggested by a letter attributed to the killer in which he stated that he would spare the lives of those who played jazz in their homes. This could possibly have been a MacGuffin from the killer or just a prank by some individual. The Axeman wasn't caught or identified and his crime spree stopped as mysteriously as it had started. The murderer's identity remains unknown to the present day and there have been others of a similar nature over the years since. I would call to mind the man called the railway killer because he would ride the rails along the southern United States and up toward Chicago and pick victims near the railways. Angel Resendez Ramirez, I think his name was. He was caught and tried and convicted and executed here in Texas. These stories having a fairly similar, not timeline, but fairly similar way of having done them leads me to a conclusion. It's a supposition, really. A theory, unproven at best. Could there be an evil entity that is, for all intents and purposes, eternal? Looking back at Resendez's statement right before his execution that I'm eternal, I'm going to be alive forever, makes me wonder if he may have been possessed 
by this evil entity I spoke of, and if he was, was this evil entity speaking through him? Makes you think. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour and Unexplained Cases. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments. Or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.